0: Welcome to the Flight Baptist Church podcast. This is part 11 of our ongoing series, Journey with Jesus. Let's join Clarence Hughes for part 11 entitled, God Wants the Genuine Article. Today we're going to continue our parallel series from the book of Mark, uh, the journey with Jesus. If you have your Bibles today, please turn to Mark chapter 11, and we'll be reading verses 12 through 25. Now, the next day, as they are leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find it if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not in the season for figs. And then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple courts. And he taught them, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it into a den of robbers. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says this to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and has no doubt in their heart but believes what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you of your sins. Now when I first read this first 20 or 30 times maybe more I really had difficulty making any sense of it. Because if you think about it, you know, first it opens up with Jesus cursing a fig tree. Then he makes his way down to the temple and he causes a bunch of mayhem by chasing people out of the temple, knocking over tables and after teaching a, an impromptu Bible study, He takes his disciples back into the country where they pass the aforementioned fig tree, and Peter notices it's all withered up, and Jesus just tells them simply to have faith. And then he speaks about hurling mountains into the ocean, and I'm completely lost. I mean, sounds pretty simple, I guess. Now, I've never read an account in the New Testament or anything about the early church history of any follow of Christ actually altering any significant terrain features on the behalf of Christ. So I really wonder, what's the point? And as you think about it, the answer is something that you really wouldn't expect. It's all about being real. And when you're on a journey with Jesus He's going to want the genuine article. You know, and that's a big deal, right? I mean, think about it. Counterfeiting. It's a big crime. You know, If you were sick, you would want real medicine. As a matter of fact, I remember a few years ago, they threw a pharmacist in jail for a very, very, very long time because he was actually sending out fake vac- vaccines and fake medicines you know, so he could make a little bit more money on, on the side. They threw him in jail for a long time. You know, when we buy something expensive, generally, we're looking for a certificate of authenticity. And you know, God is no different. He wants the real thing as well. And our certificate of authenticity as Christians is shown by the fruit that we produce. As a matter of fact, it says in Matthew 7.20, thus by their fruits, you will recognize them. Now, what we read about in Mark 11 is a glaring example of two objects that are essentially counterfeits. I mean, they look pretty on the outside, but in all other respects, they're essentially barren. You see, Jesus wasn't throwing a temper tantrum because he wanted a snack. And he wasn't making some political case against capitalism. He was actually making a very real example using the fig tree as kind of a a living parable. And he was making a very clear point about God's coming judgment on the nation of Israel and the temple itself. You see, to any first century Jew, which the disciples were, they would certainly remember that several of their prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Hosea, Joel, Micah, all used the fig tree as a symbol for Jerusalem. Now, if you go back in biblical history all the way back to Genesis, God told Abraham that through his people, he would bring all nations to himself through the nation of Israel. And he intended the temple of Jerusalem to be a place where he, God, would be worshipped and glorified. Now, the religious leaders eventually saw this not as an obligation, but as an advantage to exploit. You know, the temple, in a sense, became a giant cash register. See, every Jewish citizen was subject to a temple tax. If someone made a sacrifice, they couldn't bring in their own animals. They had to use an officially sanctioned temple animal. If you wanted to make a tithe or an offering, you couldn't use your money straight from the streets. There had to be a special form of temple currency put into the temple coffers. Now, of course, the temple officials had their hands in every little pie. And what was intended to become a holy place to worship Yahweh turned into a giant money machine. They had a monopoly. Now... I guess the best example is is when you go to the airport and you pay $9 for a cup of coffee or $3 for a Coke at the movies, right? Only today, we have a choice. I mean, we don't necessarily have to exercise that convenience. I mean, we always say no. But if anyone who wanted to worship God in the temple, they didn't have another option. Now, we expect to get fleeced if we go to the movies or the ballpark. I mean, that's all part of entertainment. But in a church, in a holy place, that's a different story. See, now the way that the temple of Israel was constructed, they had a number of different levels. And on the outer level, the largest level, was the court of the Gentiles. And it was the only place where non-Jews were allowed to worship God in the temple. And coincidentally enough, it just happened to be the place where they turned this into a giant marketplace, where the merchants and the money changers set up shops. So put yourself in the place of a Gentile. It's pretty easy to do since most of us are. But at that time you hear somewhere about the one true God, the the one who miraculously delivers his people out of bondage again and again, who parted the sea, who came down as a pillar of fire, who created bountiful miracles, who was a God that was full of grace and compassion, who was slow to anger, and it stirs your heart. So you decide that you're going to go on this pilgrimage over hundreds of miles, and you're in the barren wastelands, and you're fighting bandits, and you're dodging wild animals. Pretty dramatic, right? And then so you finally show up to the city of Israel, or city of Jerusalem. You come into the temple, and you're expecting... Great things because you've been saving up for this pilgrimage all your life. Going to the place where God actually physically manifests himself. And what do you find? A giant Middle Eastern bazaar. I mean, think about it. Imagine the, if, you, if the only option you had for worship was, say... The food court at the Van Mall at Christmas time. <laughs> and that's exactly what any Gentile or non Jew would experience if they wanted to go and experience who God was. Now, think about it. Probably the experience didn't even match the expectation. And I'd have to bet that the majority of those people at that time came away discouraged and with a feeling that that place was filled with a bunch of hypocrites. Now, today, we're all much better off because we all know that there's no hypocrites in church today. (laughs) But at that time, it didn't matter to the Jews because they pretty much figured that the Gentiles didn't count. They were dogs to them. But it did matter to Jesus. So when after he visited the temple, when he first came into Jerusalem, he quickly saw what this holy sight had become, and it was time to shut it down. So when Jesus saw the fig tree, like the temple, it was outwardly appearing. I mean, it appeared outwardly very appealing. There we go. I mean, temple, or the, the temple of, that Herod built was miraculous. Even the Romans, who had built amazing things in in Rome and throughout the rest of the civilized world, they they were dumbfounded with how beautiful and how opulent this place was. It was a marvel. But it was rotting from the inside. It was barren where it mattered the most. So really, the application that we can take from this as Christians... What does it take to be fruitful? And it requires us to ask ourselves a few questions. And the first one is, do I focus on my fruit or my foliage? I know that sounds pretty goofy, so let's put it a different way. Do my actions bring people to Christ or do they push them away? I know the first, question, the first question is kind of goofy, but the second question really calls us on the spot if we choose to actually examine ourselves. You know, lots of us get tripped up here and there when we think that we're doing the right thing because that's what God would have us to do, but it really gets down to it. We're dumb and we do stupid, thoughtless things. I mean, out there, there's people that call themselves Christians who, usually in a public forum, are more than eager to tell other people that they're going to hell because of some belief, some lifestyle, or some action that they do. We've seen that, right? Or there's other people that you know, have a very pious public appearance And yet anyone around them is immediately turned off from the idea of coming into a relationship with Christ because they know there's no way that they could live up to that standard. Or you could just be a short-tempered, fly-off-the-handle jerk that doesn't have time for anybody else. No one wants to be around that. Lord, forgive me. But to me, my natural inclination is to concentrate on the foliage. I mean, because to me, it is far more important and easier to focus on our outward appearance, my outward appearance. You know, even though the idea of actually controlling anything is just merely an illusion. I mean, our civilization, our culture celebrates that. You know, look, darlings, it's not how you feel. It's how you rook, and you rook marvelous. (laughs) But it's a lie. But it's a lie that we all buy into. I mean, it's our natural tendency. Think about this. Think about your house right now. What looks better, your front yard or your backyard? Now, for me, I mean, my side yard's deplorable. I mean, all I can say is, remember Sanford and Son. But no one sees it. It's behind a fence. It's behind a veneer. It's behind a facade. And really, when it comes down to it, what God wants is not what's on the outside. It's what's in our heart. And if our hearts are right with him, if we're living in that relationship with him, the way that we'll know that, our barometer, our yardstick... (laughs) will be the fruits that we produce. That's why it says in John fifteen eight, this is my Father's glory that you'll bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. How do we show that we're a disciple of Christ? By the fruits we're producing. You know, if I think, if I take an informal poll right now, I think that most of us, most Christians, want to live fruitful lives. As a matter of fact, I went on um, one of these Bible, you know, one of these Christian bookstores, one of their websites, and just for fun, I put in the search engine, fruit, fruitful, came up with over 500 titles. So obviously, I mean, it strikes a chord out there. It's an important subject. Oh, I'm missing a page. You know, I'm just going to have to run with this. Hold on one second. Oh, man, I was really in the middle of making a good point. I hate when that happens. Okay. Um, See, we're all about making, we're all about, thank you, all about producing good fruit and going through your sermon notes and making sure you have every page of your sermon. It's page seven, Jeremy. Alright then. Let's give Jeremy another round of applause. <laughs> oh yeah, this is good stuff. <laughs> Glad you found it. Ooh, as a matter of fact, I don't know how I'd have gone, gone out without it. Alright. So so in addition to having all of your sermon notes, what is elemental? What's the essence of actually? producing fruits in our lives. Well, if we go back to Mark 11, we see in verse 22 that Christ tells the disciples that they have to have faith. I mean, it seems really kind of simple. I mean, almost a letdown when you hear that. But, but let's think about something. You know, It says in Hebrews 11.6 that it's impossible to please God without it. It's the linchpin. It's the foundation. It's the glue that holds everything that we believe in together. You know, it's not enough to believe in God or the birth, death, and resurrection in Christ. Faith is the element, get this, that requires us to trust God more than we trust ourselves. See, the issue is, is we don't. And therein lies the root of every sin ever committed in the history of mankind. We decide that we know what's better for us than God. And then when we read about having faith, we mistake what Jesus says when he says, whatever you ask for in prayer, we mistake that for some blanket promise that we can ask for anything that we want. And as long as we believe hard enough or pray long enough, God will miraculously grant us into our lives irrespective of God's will. And that's not the case. We have to have faith and we have to trust God that irrespective of the circumstances that we are in at this moment in time, that God's got everything under control. And if we're in God's will... Wherever we are, we're exactly where God wants us to be. Now, a lot of name-it-and-claim-it preachers would say otherwise. Friends, you just have to have enough faith out there. I'm telling you, you pray hard enough, God's going to hear you, He will deliver you. That's baloney. And I'll give you, a, I'll give you an example. Eh? Just a little theological example. Now, I think that we can all agree that no one had more faith than Jesus Christ. Agreed? Okay. So the night before he was crucified, Jesus went into the garden of Gethsemane. And he knew he was about to be beaten and put to death on a cross. Right? He knew it. So he prayed to his father not to be put to death. He prayed to the point where he was sweating blood. And even as he prayed this he still asked that the father's will be done and not his. Okay? Now, I've prayed hard for a lot of stuff, but never to the point of sweating blood. I don't think I have a thimbleful of the faith that Christ has. He prayed pretty hard. What happened? He still went to the cross he still suffered an agonizing death. Didn't want to. Didn't enjoy it. But he did it. He did it because he had faith in God, faith in the Father, knowing and trusting God more than he trusted his natural inclinations to get out of Dodge. Right now, I can't stand here and profess that I have any idea of why any of us are going through what we're dealing with. You know, I know because of the root of the sin and the fall, I mean, it's easy to understand up here, but really, we don't know why. And unfortunately, faith is not about getting the answers that we're looking for again. Faith is about trusting God more than we trust ourselves. And I know there's a lot of hurt out there. I know there's a lot of anxiety. I know there's a lot of uncertainty. And it's a scary place out there. And I know I don't have the answers. But I do know this. That in the book of John's Revelation, in the 21st chapter Jesus will make everything right. And that day is probably a lot sooner than any of us would imagine. So it's about trusting God more than we trust ourselves. And the issue is the Pharisees didn't. You know, they got wrapped up in their rules and their pecking order, and they lost sight of God. I mean, they essentially became a cult of temple worshipers. They were so blind to the truth. Can you imagine? They were so blind to the truth that they stood in the very presence of God and didn't recognize him because they were so deluded and caught up in the wrong things. And the Pharisees and most of their followers believed that because they had this special relationship with God, it gave them carte blanche, you know, a hall pass to exploit others and really to get proud and to think too highly of themselves. You know, they put the merchants and the money changers in the, in the court of the Gentiles because you know why? They thought the Gentiles were dogs. They didn't count. How often do we do that? You know, I'm amazed sometimes, you know, that I can do spiteful things and say hurtful things to other people. And yet in the same breath, go to God with... Confidence, as a child would go to his father and submit my prayers and petition, even though in the back of my mind somewhere there's some issue burning with somebody because I'm just a little more than irritated at him. I'm sure I'm the only person in the room that's like that. So, in the act of trusting God, as it says in Luke 11... 28, and James 2.18, the act of faith, it's an action. It goes beyond the belief. It says in Luke 11.28, but he said that more than that, blessed are those that hear the word of God and keep it. And then James 2.18 says, but someone will say, I have faith, or you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. Okay? It's about going beyond hearing it, believing it, but then making it a a positive element in your life that impacts other people to the point that they're inclined to seek out Christ in their life. If you remember a few weeks ago, we learned that Christianity is a team sport. And we're not supposed to be on the sidelines. So in order to be fruit-bearing, getting back to the issue at hand, where do we start? I mean, we have this big, thick book, and somewhere in there, there's got to be the answer to this question of how do we be a more fruitful person, fruitful Christian, putting legs to our faith. And actually... Christ says it in verse 25. He says, when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you of your sins. So the element here, the capstone, the foundation, the cornerstone, am I emphasizing this enough? Is forgiveness. You know, you think about it when you when you read this verse, you read this passage. I mean, it does sound kind of disjointed. I mean, first he's talking about faith, then he's talking about forgiveness, he's breaking that off when you're praying, and as you're reading it, if you go through it a few times, you really kind of think that, you know, somewhere Mark must have cut and pasted a number of different things together, and it just really doesn't make sense. Now, because if you link 22 Verse 22, about having faith and all things will be granted to you. With verse 25, you know, it almost sounds like two randomly different subjects. But really, if you think about it, and you think about the element of who Christ is, the two are inseparable. Because if we are to be like Christ and forgive, as he says in his book, what it does is, frankly, it makes us, it forces us to suspend the claim that we have against somebody else. Someone who wronged us, that we feel that we have the right to exercise judgment, and punishment on. We have to renounce our claim. Now, for someone who cuts you off on the freeway, that's probably a lot easier to do than a business partner that cheats someone out of their livelihood, or a family member or a spouse that betrays someone else. I mean, it ups the ante. But that's precisely what God is calling us to do. And frankly, it's impossible to do unless we have, wait for it, faith. So the two are inseparably tied together. Now you might ask yourselves, why is it important to forgive other people? Why does God put such an emphasis on that here And the rest of the New Testament. Well, I mean, the short answer is, it's because Jesus did. And when we accept Christ as our Savior, and we are invested with God's Holy Spirit in us, then God goes about the miraculous, supernatural process of making us more like His Son, Which is why Paul writes in Romans 8, 29, for those who foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Now, what does that mean in plainer English? All right, God picked us. And those that he picked, he wanted to be like his son, Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He forgives. I mean, the whole New Testament was all about stories of Christ extending grace and forgiveness. And you know, it's interesting because Christ is telling us as we pray, we should forgive other people. Personally, now when I pray, usually there's a lot of praise to God. You know, you're great. Thank you. You're wonderful. Thank you for everything. There's some petitions. Please help out so-and-so. Bless them. Right? Right? There's the confession part. Really screwed up here. Sorry. Forgive me. But really, it never occurred to me to spend any amount of time forgiving other people as I prayed. just kind of went over my head. It wasn't in my field of view. But yet, Jesus makes it a point to tell his disciples to do this as they pray. As a matter of fact, if you think about the Lord's Prayer know well, what 's the line? Forgive us as we forgive others right it 's right there i mean it 's like when you 're looking at that three d picture right and all you see is the dots you can 't see, and all of a sudden boom there 's this picture of you know merry go round or a clown or something like that right and you couldn 't see it just a second ago, but it, it 's always been there you know and as I thought about this and I really looked at the scriptures that supported this, it seems like it's just interwoven throughout the entire Old and New Testament. You know, if you look at Colossians 3.13, you know, bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive them as who? As the Lord forgave you. Ephesians 4.32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ God forgave you. You know, we forgive, really, because God forgives us. And from a practical standpoint, if we don't forgive, it's us who pays the price of unforgiveness. You know, we hold grudges, which leads to anger, revenge, bitterness, and it continually eats at our heart. You know, if you look at it it from a different perspective, in your mind, have you ever met a bitter person? who just can't seem to let go of something. Now, are they abounding in spiritual fruit? I mean, think about it. When you think of this person, do you think joy, peace, contentment? No, you don't. And you typically don't even want to be around that person because they're not that much fun. They're bitter. But forgiveness is a choice. And I don't claim to know anybody else's problems here. And I, I mean, I can tell you honestly, I have enough problems of my own. And on any given day, I can tell you I, it's completely out of my hands. And that's the 100% reason why I trust in God because I know I can't handle stuff on my own. But know this if you want fruits in your life and you want to live that spiritual life, be truly blessed it starts by exercising your faith in the here and now and the critical step is forgiveness. Now it doesn't come naturally. It doesn't come easily. In fact, it's against everything that is in our fleshly human nature. And I think the Apostle Paul wrote it the best when he wrote to the church in Rome, I don't understand what I do for What I want to do, I don't do, but I do what I hate to do. Now, some people could see that this is Paul being very frustrated. I find this to be very inspirational. Because I know that the disciple who saw God appear before him, who was pretty close to the big guy, wrote most of the New Testament, If he was confessing that it was hard for him to actually live this life, it gives me quite a bit of comfort knowing that when I screw up, there's a guy that's a lot higher up the pecking order that was just the same as me. So it's impossible to do on our own. But as it says in his word that through God all things are possible, but it requires us to come to him often and rely on him. And there is the linchpin, there's the faith thing again. Now it depends on whether or not we trust God more than we rely on ourselves. You know, are you holding a grudge? Do you have a claim against someone? I mean it might be a friend, ex friend, coworker, it might even be your spouse. You've been carrying this with you a long time, maybe. When are you gonna let it go? You know, if your grudge is against your spouse, you know, we've got a wonderful opportunity in a couple of weeks to address your marriage in a marriage conference. Now, will a weekend conference fix problems that have been manifest for years? Probably not. But, as the old saying goes, the 10,000-mile journey starts with the first step forward. So, we've talked about faith, We've talked about forgiveness. Actually, i talked about a lot of stuff, and I'm amazed if anyone's been keeping track of all this. But I want to leave you with just a little something that will help encapsulate everything into one simple line. And if you remember this, you, know, you, you might have a pretty good chance of applying this in your life. It's a little mathematical equation. Anyone like math? Really? I hate it. Anyway... <laughs> But here it is. Faith. There we go. Plus forgiveness equals fruit. Letting go of those claims that you have against other people. It requires us to make a leap of faith. choice that we can all make consequences on one side it's a life of bitterness despair resentment the other hand having a supernaturally bound life continually blessed by the father but it starts with the decision and the choice is yours stand with me please and bow your head (laughs) Now, before the the worship team comes up and sings and continues on with our worship, I'd just like you to stand there and with your head bowed and your eyes closed, I just want you to look inside your heart and think about where this applies directly to you. What are you holding on to? What has it cost you? Where does this show up in your life? And what are you going to do now? Just ask you to to go to the Father and ask Him to put in your mind that issue that you're holding on to that's separating you from Him. And as that happens, ask Him to take that from you and make that leap of faith. Dear Lord God, I thank you for the life that you've given to us. I thank you for that promise of eternal life. For the offer to adopt us into your family. That if we call that Christ is your son, that he died for us, and we ask for his forgiveness, that we too can have eternal life. And more than that, I thank you for the freedom that being in your family gives us. The freedom from bitterness, the freedom from resentment. And God, I just pray that here you would open our hearts and give us a willingness to believe and follow you. And give us the strength, Lord, to continually keep coming back to you when we fall to get back up again and continue our journey with you. We thank you for your blessings. We thank you for your unbounded love. And we pray and give you our petitions in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Philida Baptist Church podcast. To stay connected, or for more resources, visit our brand new website at philida.org.